Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And this is Jill Wine Banks. And today I'm wearing an anti gun. Oh, actually, I'm not. I just took it off to take a photograph of it. I'll have to get it and put it on. But I do have an anti gun Jill's pin. Yes, which she posted on Twitter right before we went live. Um, In the first month of 2023, there have been more than 52 mass shootings in America, which means on average, there are almost two mass shootings every day. A mass shooting is one in which at least three or four are killed or injured by use of a gun. That is an outraging and an unbelievable number and one that far surpasses any other developed nation. Those numbers are explained by by the way our nation treats guns Unlike any other developed nation, we don't have a nationwide background check system. We don't have a military assault weapons ban or limitations on high capacity magazine purchases. We don't adequately enforce red flag laws. And most of all, we have elected officials spewing hate that leads to violence. And we don't have elected officials on both sides of the aisle who will pass sensible gun reform. As a result, we're seeing communities across the country plagued with gun violence. And today we come together once again to talk about this uniquely American problem and some possible solutions to ending it. We are going to welcome three guests today um, to talk about enacting meaningful, sustainable gun reform legislation on the federal and local levels. Our guests today are U.S. Representative from Illinois, my very own Representative Jan Schakowsky. Hi, Jan and also the mayor of Highland Park, Nancy Rotering, who has overseen the response to the horrific July 4th shooting there, and former U.S. Representative Jackie Spear, whose district included Half Moon Bay, which is the site of one of the many recent shootings um, and a particularly horrific one in California. Because Representative Joukowsky can only be with us for a very limited time, we're having her on first, and then we'll be joined by Mayor Rotering and former Representative Spear. So thank you, Representative Joukowsky. It's great to see you. Well, my honor, my dear friend. Thank you. Our pleasure. And go ahead, uh, Victor. So let's get started. Many Americans are frustrated and so scared at our nation's gun violence. I'm wondering if you can just start off by telling us, what can you tell us about what, if anything, is happening in Congress right now to address this issue? I think Congress is way behind the American people who would like to see us do something serious to limit limit gun violence. I think the most startling um, number is that now in the United States of America, the chief cause of death of children is guns. Think about that. And uh, Jill, you said a uniquely American issue, and that's absolutely true. There is no other country who has the level of gun violence that that we do. Um, And it is uh, time for us to do something really serious about it. You know, we had a, uh, we passed a a bill the first time in three decades um, that made our our streets a little safer and our communities a little safer. But I think people want to see even more action to get rid of the, the, the guns, to get rid of the assault weapons that, that we are seeing. Um, you know, last year, um, over 630 people died um, because of gun violence, which all includes not only uh, suicide, but everything else as well. Um, it, 
there, there doesn't seem to be a safe community anymore where people feel confident and the anxiety that so many people, particularly young people, I had a, a round table with high school students and I hadn't really understood in my heart the kind of anxiety that they feel in a girl who had a bulletproof backpack that she carried in school all the time. It's really heavy. She won't even put it in her locker. But the, the kind of anxiety that they feel, the mental illness that can develop from that, we can do so many things. We don't even make sure that guns are um, held in safe places in our homes. Um, we should be able to do that easily. We should be able to have universal background checks. These are things that are um, overwhelmingly supported by Americans. So you're absolutely right because the statistics show that I, I don't understand how Republicans in Congress can continue to oppose these measures when 71% of Americans say gun laws should be stricter. Majorities favor policies to restrict who can buy guns and policy that ban certain types of guns. And the most popular regulations are those that about who can purchase guns. 85% support a federal law that would prevent mentally ill people from purchasing guns. So what though can and is Congress doing? What is realistic given that members of Congress, particularly Republicans are so resistant on this issue? What, what's realistic? What is Congress doing and what might actually pass? So. Of course, we passed in the House of Representatives a ban on assault weapons. We're going to try it again. But I want to tell you, I do think that the politics around guns is really changing. And that's why we were able to pass the bills that we did. Um, and what that means is that Republicans are beginning to understand because they're hearing from their own constituents that they want something done. They want to be safe when they go to the grocery store, yeah. when they go to the movies, when they go out on the street, when their children go to school. So I, I really do think that we're going to, if we keep fighting, making progress, the only thing that's holding us back, I think is the money from the gun industry, sad as it is to say, that mm -hmm. uh, helps you know fund some of their, their reelection campaigns. We can't let that happen. I'm glad to hear that you are seeing some movement from Republicans on this issue. Well, Jill, if I can ask a question, I mean, I, I'm reminded of this one New York Republican. I believe his name was Chris Jacobs, who last year, a couple of years ago, when, when he came out and said that he supported a federal assault weapons ban, a Republican, he dropped his bid for reelection because of the Republican backlash to it. And I'm wondering if you're seeing Republicans now like Chris Jacobs who are coming out against it and who are like, is, what is the Republican Party's position on this? Do they have anything? Generally, the position has been to protect the um, gun industry. That's the truth. But I'm telling you, and, and certainly we have seen some uh, Republicans lose their elections um, in, in the past on this. Um, but I do think the reason they felt like they had to move forward at least um, a little bit um, to pass legislation um, that they, they're, they're realizing. But what that says is that people need to be mobilized. They need 
to be calling their legislators. I mean, if we just had the people from all of the mass shootings around the country talking to their legislators and saying, you have to stop the carnage and you can do that. And if you don't, you are not going to get my vote. So, and, and the only reason I think we have made the progress that we did is because there has been for the first time a mass mobilization of people demanding change. Of course, I hope everyone listening to this will reach out to their member of Congress. And I would say, uh, let me ask you, even those who support like you do, it helps to have, doesn't it, for you to hear from your constituents, to know that they really want you to keep on this topic. So don't just reach out to the opponents, reach out and give support to those who are supporting this. Is that correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And what you're saying is people have to know their power, their individual power to make a difference because the only top line thing that members of Congress know, they know how to count. They know how to count votes. And so we certainly want uh, as many people to be counted as wanting um, straightforward, common sense, gun violence prevention legislation. We can do this. You know, you know again, you said it, this is a, an, uh, an American problem that we have. Uh, when we had 43,000 people die in the United States, China, no, it was, uh, huh? Yeah, I'm sorry. It was Japan, 10 people, 10 people. All over the world, you see these tiny numbers of people dying from gun violence because they have laws. They, and they don't let everybody walk down the street, even with the most deadly weapon. Right. I love what you called it, which was anti-gun violence prevention. Gun violence prevention legislation is, sounds so much better than gun control. Um, Maybe that's an important element of how we say it. I mean, how can the NRA prevent or oppose prevention of gun violence? That's a whole different thing. Um, is there anything that Democrats can do on their own while we try to build the momentum for Republicans to join? Uh, Representative Scott, I think you might be on mute. Or maybe, maybe not. Am I there now? I can hear you. Can hear you. One of the things that um, legislators can do is to get their states, legislators at every level, but members of Congress too, to get their state legislatures, like we're doing in Illinois, to get a ban on assault weapons. So let's let's turn to all of our local and state, and that's what I know you're going to be doing is yeah. talking to um, our wonderful mayor of Highland yes. Park to talk about that. And we have Congresswoman uh, Jackie Spear with us right now. So oh, Jackie, I miss you. Hi. Yeah, I miss you too. <laughs> we all miss you, Jackie. Yes. Oh, Jackie, Jackie. Yeah, I'm so sorry you're not there anymore, but so glad that you're joining us today. Um, we're, we're thrilled to have you with us and have so many questions um, about the tragedy that befell your former district, um, uh, Half Moon, and what we can do there. And we've just been talking with uh, Jan about some of the stuff in Illinois, and we'll be joined soon by Mayor Rotering, um, who, of course, 
oversaw the response to the Highland Park January 4th, July 4th uh, shooting. But um, maybe, uh, Jackie, we've already introduced you before you joined us. Um, let's, let's look at, you know, what's happening in California where there have been four mass shootings in the last week, including I think, Moon Day. Think, I, I think Representative Schakowsky has to go at 6.15, so, um, which is oh, yeah. 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 Thank you for joining us. We yeah. appreciate it that you had this time for us, and we will always welcome you on the show. Any anytime, Jill, and you know, you and I live near Highland Park, and so yes. you know we know um, that. But Jackie, yeah. so sad, and um, very so sad. Very, so thank you. I'm gonna thank you. Bye. So back to you. Um, so, um, let me um, kind of set the, the stage. Yeah, please. Half Bay is a community that I've represented for 40 years. Um, and I can't tell you how painful it was to hear about this mass shooting in a community that I love so much and be so dis detached from it. Um, but here's what we know. This was a worker who um, was offended by how he was being bullied by some of the other employees. He was charged illegally, I might add now, it appears, a $100 fine for uh, damaging a forklift and moving it around the property. And that was the trigger for him to come back and shoot his supervisor and another individual who was a co-worker and then go to another farm uh, where he had felt somehow uh, offended and shoot um, three more people. Um, this is a bucolic area. For the longest time, it was uh, operated by local farmers. As it turns out, this farming entity now, it's a big, one of the biggest mushroom farms in the country, it appears. Um, is owned by a foreign entity. Uh, there is squalor under the, the conditions under which the workers are living. Um, there's lots of violations of the law. They, um, so having kind of framing it in that regard tells you that even locally, there's more work that needs to be done to uh, address some of the conditions under which these workers were working. Now, this particular individual does not fit the normal profile of a mass shooter. He was 67 years old. The one in Monterey Park was 72. So, um, and they both, I, I, I believe, at least in the case of um, Half Moon Bay, the shooter had purchased the gun legally. Mm -hmm. It appears in the Monterey Park case that he had um, created a homemade silencer on his gun, which would have been illegal. Um, but again, it's um, an environment in which people who get angered, who, who feel a sense of hostility, feel that they can take it out on others by loading a gun and killing them. And were either of these, neither was a fully automatic weapon in either yeah. of these California shootings. Um, were they high capacity magazines? I believe, no, I don't believe the one in Half Moon Bay was. Um, and the one in Monterey Park um, may have been altered to take um, high capacity magazine, but I'm not even certain of that. So we so, wanted to ask you about 
that I just want to say um, we have Mayor Nancy Rotering with us right now from Highland Park. Um, so welcome, Mayor Rotering. Thanks so much for being here. Glad to join you. Thank you. Thank you. And we've already introduced both of you to our audience so they know who you are and, and why you're joining us today. And um, I mean, maybe one more question for um, uh, Representative Spire before we go to the Illinois situation. And that is, you know, California has some of the strictest gun laws that you have good state laws there. And so what we're hearing, of course, is Republicans and gun supporters saying, well, if it happened in California, what's the point of having gun laws? It doesn't work. What's the response to that? Well, the, the response is really quite clear. I actually carried the assault weapon ban in the California state legislature back in um, the late 90s. So I have a long history working on this issue. And the answer to your question, Jill, is that's why we need federal legislation because our borders are porous and you can bring in guns very easily and people do. And a lot of these purchases in other states are um, individual purchases. And most crime guns are individual purchases where it's person to person sales. Um, so we need a comprehensive uh, regulation of guns in this country. And I would just say one last thing. We have 330 million people in the United States. The European Union has 400 million. So somewhat close um, in terms of population. In the EU in 2020, there were 2,500 gun violent deaths. In the wow. United States, there were 45,000. Wow. Oh we, we are abnormal and we've got to face up to that fact. Yeah. And we've got to impose just common sense regulation. I think every gun should be registered. You know, when we registered machine guns, which you can still own a machine gun in this country, but it has to be registered. Um, it, it changes the dynamic dramatically. Wow. I mean, it really puts in a different light when you start comparing it to other countries, knowing just how big of a problem our nation's gun laws are. And I want to turn to um, Mayor Rotering. Um, Jill and I, we both live not too far away from Highland Park, and you had to respond to a shooting that killed seven and injured 48 during the Highland Park annual Fourth of July parade um, by a 21-year-old from a rooftop vantage First, tell us about that incident and whether or not after, you know, a few months after the shooting, there's any identified motive for the shooting. Um, I know Highland Park has a large Jewish population and the surrounding community has many Hispanic residents. Does it have to relate to that at all? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for letting me join you today. And, and I want to extend my deepest condolences uh, to the Congresswoman and to the state of California. That was just unbelievable those three days of, of pain and agony and our hearts were with all of you as you are now on this journey uh, along with us. Um, and Victor, I have to tell you, we are currently um, still in an active litigation, obviously, uh, with this case. So I can't really speak to motive. Um, but suffice it to say that when thousands of people gather to celebrate our country's freedom and are faced with weapons that were designed to kill and maim as many people as quickly as possible, um, that's a problem. That's not living life, that's living in fear. And we have this problem and we, we've heard this adage everywhere, you know, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. 
Um, and I appreciated you sharing uh, the data in terms of um, other nations and our nation. Um, starting tomorrow is Gun Violence Survivors Week from the 1st till the 7th. And it's celebrated, or not celebrated, it's observed in, in February because by that point, we have had equal number of uh, shootings um, in our country as would match those of other developed nations in an entire year. Wow. So to be really clear, 12 months of other developed nations and whatever they experience with gun violence, the United States experiences by the beginning of February. Wow. That gets to the point of how disproportionate it is. And, you know, it's interesting. We had, as, as the Congresswoman noted, we had an assault weapons ban and have had one on the books now for nearly 10 years, but none of us are islands. And uh, we know all too well that gun trafficking is alive and well in the United States. And but for Hawaii, uh, we're all at risk until federal action is taken. So my appreciation to the House in its last session, passing the assault weapons ban of 2022. Uh, now we are uh, in a new session, and I believe the Senate is looking at this question. But we know that from 1994 to 2004, we did have an assault weapons ban in this country. And during that time, at least according to Giffords, the number of deaths from mass shootings went down 70-70%. So I don't understand why it's so difficult for folks to understand that these are too dangerous to be in civilian hands. And um, until we take federal action, we're going to be suffering day in and day out, more than, more shootings than there are days in the year at the current rate. Um, the devastation and the carnage that came to Highland Park on the 4th of July and now continues apace throughout the country. It was a tragedy that hit way too close to home as far as I'm concerned, but I feel it no matter where it is. It's not just when it's my neighborhood next door. Uh, I feel horrible when it's in California or Texas or anywhere else. Um, but I do want to talk about red flag laws. And also, I guess in both Highland Park, it was a legally purchased, a, not illegally, a legally purchased weapon. And so even though we have strict laws in California and in Illinois, someone with a legal weapon was able to, and in Highland Park, I know he had three 30-round magazines, and he, I'm told, shot 83 of those bullets. So basically emptied three cartridges. And um, so that raises the question of, okay, so what other laws do we need? This one wasn't brought in from Indiana, which is a frequent you know, problem for Illinois, where Indiana has loose laws. It was purchased legally. Um, and there was a red flag on this particular shooter in Highland Park, but nobody really enforced it. So how do we get that enforced? Will his father being charged, which seems to be a possibility based on what I read in the Chicago papers, um, will that deter other parents from letting their children have guns? How do we determine, um, obviously, the half moon that you've described, um, Jackie, the shooter clearly had a. a <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's okay. 
It's usually Jill's job. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, Brisby likes to join in on these conversations and he's very much against guns. So he would certainly speak up here. Um, so I just want to sort of like the practical real effect of those. How do we, you know, I want the arguments so that I can make them. Tell me what to say to people who make those arguments against those things. Well, I think it's important. Oh, sorry. Um, so my big concern about red flag laws is just what you said. They are not enforced. And those of us who are in a position to identify someone who is unstable um, are reluctant to do so. So um, that that makes these, these laws really um, not laws at all. And um, so I... I, they're offered up as being the solution when um, oftentimes I don't think they are. In the case of the shooter in Half Moon Bay, um, he had a history. Years earlier, he was um, working as a um, waiter in a restaurant his, with his roommate, and he tried to suffocate his roommate with a pillow and said he wanted to kill him. Well, did that roommate reported and did that um, turn into anything? I think the answer was clearly no, because he legally purchased a gun. I think it's important to note that in the Highland Park situation, and again, I'm a little bit constrained given that we're still obviously working through this case, um, but there had been a clear and present danger um, affixed to the uh, shooter's name through Highland Park's police being called to the family's home. He had threatened to kill everybody. He had an extensive knife collection and that was flagged in the Illinois state police system. For some reason, whether it was age, whether it was time passing, whatever the situation was, um, there then was enough time that had gone by that when his father um, supported his application for an FOID, um, he was no longer a clear and present danger. So in the case of the Highland Park situation, everything that we could do, we did correctly. Um, but now I believe that that gap has been closed. The Illinois State Police and the governor through administrative action have changed the law to have it be a longer time period if you have a clear and present danger affixed to your name uh, so that you can't wait out the clock, so to speak. Um, but the red flag laws are but one item. I think let's get to the very bottom of all of this. We know throughout the entire world, people have mental health issues. There is unfortunately horrible domestic violence. People hate other people, but what they don't have is access to guns like they do in the United States. And so that's what brings us back to the very real need for federal restriction. We saw that with the Tommy guns in the 30s when those were banned uh, to the most extent. And um, I believe the time is due for us to return back to uh, federal assault weapons ban and large capacity magazine ban. And we saw that introduced, was it today or yesterday in the house? So thankful for that. I believe Brad Schneider was one of the Congress members who was behind that. You know, Mayor, let me just throw a little cold water on um, those efforts because I mean, I've unfortunately dealt with these uh, gun uh, reform efforts for decades now. And in Congress, um, it, 
just nothing will happen. Nothing will happen for the next two years without question. The assault weapon ban we passed, I believe last year we passed the magazine, um, uh, high capacity magazine ban, uh, and they sat in the Senate because um, of the filibuster and because of the limited time to engage in debate on so many issues that they put aside those that they think aren't going to uh, be successful. But then that doesn't allow those of us in our communities um, to rally together and you know, impose our will on those that we elect. And so to that end, we turn to the state houses yeah. and the state senates. Yeah. And I know our governor has been speaking to governors in other states, and I've been reaching out to mayors um, across the country. We know that the nine, now nine states, thanks to Illinois joining the group and Washington, D.C., account for 30% of the population of the United States. So 30% of the population is currently subject to a ban. Uh, to that end, we are all going to continue to work, whether it's at the state level or even at the local level, like we were able to do in Highland Park, to see if we can just make it that much harder for somebody with malintent to get their hands on one of these combat weapons. Um, and, you know, it's so frustrating because I think we can all agree it just needs to stop. We saw this in Australia when there was a mass shooting pretty much within days, a very conservative prime minister in 1998 said, that's it, these guns are gone. And and to your point, Congresswoman Spire, you know, if it's not going to happen in Washington, then we will just continue to move through whichever way we can to make it that much harder and hopefully save more lives. It's just astounding to so many of us um, how, how deep and um, horrific this pain is to so many communities. And here we are uh, approaching seven months since it happened in Highland Park and the tears are still just at the surface. And so many people are still going to and from the hospital as they work on their rehabilitation because their lives are forever changed because somebody thought they had a right to have one of these guns. What about the Illinois law that uh, Governor Pritzker just signed? Will that have any significant uh, penalties that will stop any of this? And is it a model for other states? It is, I think, at this point, the strongest in the nation. It is a model. Um, it's not quite as strong as the Highland Park ordinance. So I'm going to continue to see what we can do at the local level. We know state preemption gets in the way of a lot of communities' efforts to pass their own local laws. So that's another layer to the onion that we're going to need to work on at the state level is allowing municipalities, if you can't do this at the federal level, if you can't do this at the state level, then for heaven's sake, recognize the very real needs of public officials at the local level to take the necessary steps to protect the public safety. At the end of the day, uh, this kind of horror lands at our front doorstep. And mayors know this all too well. Um, so to that end, the Illinois law is um, strong. I am ever hopeful that it will stand up to uh, the judicial challenges that are being poured into the attorney general's office. Um, but again, if you can save one life, that's a win. We want to save more. But obviously, any way we can make it harder for someone to get their hands on these weapons, that's considered a success. 
So I have a question for both um, you, Representative Spear and Mayor Rotering. And, you know, I hate to make this political, but it unfortunately is political because and to me, it's because of House Republicans and Senate Republicans who have failed to act on this issue. And so, Representative Spear, I want you to first kind of lay out for our audience, especially young people who I don't think quite realize the kind of pervasiveness of the lobbying industry and the NRA. How big of an influence do they have kind of pick, kind of capture that for us and then Mayor Rotary, how have you kind of heard from um, maybe your Republican mayor colleagues about what they're doing in their communities? Because I don't think that the House um, Republicans or Senate Republicans are very reflective of what maybe other Republicans across the country are thinking. Is that the feeling that you're getting? But maybe, Representative Spear, you can start first. So the NRA has had a lock on the Republicans for a very long time. They have, in fact, seen a diminution of their power, but it's been replaced by other groups. And it's now much more pervasive than just the NRA. There's the American Gun Owners Associations, there are the manufacturers, and there's just this kind of, um, kind of gut instinct that so many of these members have that they have some you know, extensive group of people within their communities that will um, take them out if they do anything that has any um, any likelihood that their gun will be in jeopardy, whether it's their gun or anyone else's gun. So, um, you know, the, the law that was passed and everyone was patting themselves on the back, that 30 year law jam has been broken. Um, after Yavaldi and the Topps uh, grocery store. Do you know what that bill really did? Outside of throwing money at locals to um, engage in programs, it basically created an enhanced background check for anyone between the ages of 18 and 21 who wanted to buy an assault weapon. Now, most of these people, these young people who are buying these assault weapons and then committing these massive tragedies um, don't have records. These aren't criminals. These tend to be people that have, for one reason or another, um, been outliers. They have, um, as someone said to me, it's not that they're loners, it's that they've been rejected as joiners, whether it's a, a girl that rejected them or a group of youngsters that rejected them. That's what motivates um, their conduct. And now we're seeing it in even the older population as well. Wow. So, so to answer your question, Victor, um, I have been going around talking to county boards and to cities um, asking for their support and, and really in unfortunately graphic terms talking about what happened on the 4th of July in Highland Park and countering that this is not political. This is public health. This is public safety. These are human rights that are being violated. This is terrorism. And trying to change the narrative, because unfortunately, as a country, we've normalized gun violence. We've normalized the phrase mass shootings. And we hear about it and we think, gosh, that's horrible for that community. Okay, on to the rest of my day, which is just unconscionable. And when I've spoken to mayors from other countries, they just cannot even understand what it is that we put up with in this nation. So to that end, uh, I've been pushing folks to recognize what this is actually like when this happens in your community. The, the sickening, sinking feeling of, I can't believe this is happening here, and the absolute panic and fear. We were all in hiding 
for about six hours because this guy was on the loose. He had driven to Madison, thought about doing another mass shooting, changed his mind and came home. And in that time period, people were hiding under stores and gas stations in their homes. My family went into hiding. We didn't know if we were targets. I was separated from them. It was just one of the worst days ever. And I share that with my fellow mayors. And so to that end, when we were working on getting the Illinois uh, Protect Illinois Communities Act passed, I spent the winter holidays reaching out to my fellow mayors, talking about, will you support this? Here's what's coming your way if you don't. And I literally am that direct to them because a lot of them, sort of want to put their hands over their ears and, and yeah. pretend it will never happen here. Well, we never thought it would happen here. We did everything we could to try to stop it from happening here. It can happen anywhere. And so I keep explaining that to the mayors. And to that end, I'm proud and frankly relieved to have gotten a lot of support from mayors who I believe are counting themselves as Republicans because they know all too well it doesn't matter if you're red or blue or purple. If somebody's bent on destroying your community with one of these guns, they will. So I, I know Jill has a question um, about the ERA after this, but I, I want to... Hey, crazy dog right now. Michael, could you get rid of the dog? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, well Brisky gets um, situated. I, I want to ask you both. I mean, we, we had on Representative Schakowsky right before this, and she was saying that among children now, the leading cause of death is guns. And for a lot of people in my generation, for young people especially, I'm wondering, if, you know, this is a question that I hear from a lot of my peers. Do you think this will ever end? I mean, it seems constant. And, you know, I think a lot of the solutions that Democrats have proposed are amazing. And I wish Republicans would, would get on board. But do you foresee a future in which Republicans will act on this? So I'm an optimist by nature. And I believe that as the baby boomers leave Congress and are replaced by a younger generation of people who have witnessed these um, drills in school, who have been, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids now have been um, associated with gun violence in their schools now. Um, I think you're going to see a more receptive audience to um, changing the laws. Uh, but it's, it's really got to come up from the grassroots. It's not going to come uh, from our you know, great legislators on you know, both sides of the Capitol because they are entrenched in these positions uh, and are reluctant to, to move off of them. And let me add one more point. You know, we, we talk about the, the deaths due to gun violence. Two thirds of them are suicides. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, a, that's a huge number. I worked on suicide in the military and we had real hot spots in Alaska last year. And in talking to the experts, um, what they say, it's such an impulsive act. And I think in some of these cases, it's impulsive when the mass shooters um, go out and, and kind of try their revenge on population, that just the fact that you have a gun safe that you have to open or a combination lock on a gun can um, reduce the impulse to take one's life. So that's another remedy that we should be promoting as well. Yeah. It, it sounds like there are 
minor steps that can be taken that will have major impact. That would have major impact. And I I still cannot answer my friends um, who say, well, why will that not happen? And it is hard to imagine why it won't happen. It seems to me both at the state level and at the federal level, we need this. And the federal for obvious reasons, um, not just because some states won't pass it, but because even if 39 states pass it, and by the way, I want to go to a something else, which is where 38 states have passed the Equal Rights Amendment, have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. And I, I want to talk to you particularly, Jackie, because I know you've cared a lot about this issue. Um, but let's say 39 states you know, pass laws, you still have ways of getting guns from those other states. Mm -hmm. And unless we do this on a 50 state level, um, and and I, I think, um, Nancy, as you pointed out, in Australia, and I believe in New Zealand, when there was a mass shooting, they took immediate action. It wasn't even a week. And the prime minister of New Zealand, that's it, guns are gone. That's it, we're done. Um, now, of course, they're going to have to control their nuclear arsenal as well, because we now have this little teeny <laughs> nuclear thing rolling around in something like 14,000 kilometers uh, of Australian highway. Um, but they have controlled guns. So uh, I think that's a good thing. And I, I, I want to ask both of you about the Equal Rights Amendment, because it's, uh, it's a deviation from, of course, our serious gun control discussion. But it's something that is um, particularly because Senator Durbin, who's our senior Illinois senator, um, has, I think, guaranteed that Senator Cardin's resolution is going to get a hearing. And so that makes it a currently viable thing uh, to have the ERA declared to be the 28th Amendment to the United States Constitution. 38 states have ratified it. Some have tried to rescind, but in my research, that is totally not possible. It's very clear from the Constitution and cases that you cannot rescind. Once you voted, that's it. You can't take it back. Um, and that the time deadline that was set was in a preface, not in the amendment itself that went to the states, and therefore, it is not an enforceable or viable bar to having this declared. And I, for one, think that if President Biden were to say to the attorney general, start enforcing it, that that would be it. Or if he were to say to the archivist, publish it, that would be it. Either one of those or both of them are fine actions. And But I don't think either is really necessary. It is the past amendment. So can either of you give me some hope that this is going to happen in my lifetime? I mean, I've been working on this since 1976. And I, I was at the Democratic National uh, Convention and was with um, uh, Liz Carpenter going to state delegations in behalf of arguing for passage of the ERA. And I'm tired of fighting this. It seems to me women deserve equal rights. And the only way to get it is to have this pass. So, Jackie, let me start with you. So I we had a resolution similar yes. to right. Yes, Senator Cardin and I had um, 
parallel resolutions. And yet again, another example, um, my resolution passed the House. It struck the deadline out of um, the amendment and it sat in the Senate. Now, I'm delighted that Senator Durbin is going to make sure that it has a hearing in the Senate, um, but there'll be a hold placed on that piece of legislation on the floor, which one member can do. Um, so I want to have it happen as much as you do. And I've worked on this issue for over 10 years in Congress. Um, and, you know, starting all over again is a Herculean task. So um, it's 24 words. It's, we are the only written constitution of the developed countries in the world that does not have an equal rights amendment in our constitution. And uh, it's always been used by my Republican colleagues to say, well, it, they're gonna then make abortion um, even more legal. Well, now abortion is illegal in so many states. Um, so they don't have that particular argument to make. But, uh, you know, it was also bathrooms. You know, well, now we have unisex bathrooms. So all the things that Phyllis Shafley talked about yes. um, have, you know, happened and the sky hasn't fallen. And it's important to remember that at the time that the, uh, the amendment was first introduced, it was bipartisan. Yeah. And you had, um, you know, the first lady involved uh, in promoting it. And it, she was, um, you know, Mrs. Ford. So yeah. it, it, it's way past time. Now, the only, the only good news was that we were able to, in the final hours of Congress uh, last session, get pregnancy accommodation um, that was much more comprehensive than what we have. But that's another, yet another example of how women get discriminated against in the workplace because there's not an equal rights amendment. Well, and can you imagine, I mean, I, I do remember the Phyllis Shafley arguments about, we'll have to share bathrooms, women will have to pay alimony. Yeah, they will, and they do now, and nothing has happened. Can you imagine having a draft reinstated, a, a bad idea anyway, but if it was that it would be male only, that's incomprehensible. It would never happen, and yet it could without the Equal Rights Amendment. So men should be supporting the Equal Rights Amendment as much as women. And it's, I, you're, you're not making me hopeful that it's going to actually happen, but it makes in it even time, Yes, but not in the but, next two years. <laughs> well, except that I believe that, I mean, President Biden has supported the ERA for more than 50 years. So he can take some action at the executive level I do not believe that Congress has to do this. I think it would be a great thing if they did. I don't think it's necessary. And if Congress doesn't have to act, then we should be pressing President Biden to take the necessary action to start enforcing the Equal Rights Amendment and to stop all this nonsense. Um, and w we in Illinois um, should be supporting uh Durbin doing this and making sure that it is um, something that happens. But really, it's up to President Biden, as far as I'm concerned. And I hope that our listeners will, um, I, I know many people from Indivisible in this area want to be involved in the Wisconsin um, election for the Supreme Court, because that's a very crucial, and then are going to turn their 
attention to the Equal Rights Amendment and trying to put pressure on members of Congress to and on the president to take action to guarantee that women are treated as equals in this country. So, Mayor, do you want to say anything on, on ERA? Uh, thank you, Congresswoman Spear, for all you've done, and Jill, for all you've done. Um, I came into the realm a few years after it all got started, but I do teach at Northwestern Women in American Political Leadership. And needless to say, the day that the Dobbs decision came down was a very tough day to face 40 women in their teens and 20s. So um, we... We need to do what we can to equal the playing field uh, and to put it into law. So thank you. Thank you for all you've done and, and let's get it going. And Victor's generation, it's up to you. I think, you know, exactly that's what you said is things will change when his generation takes over. And uh, I'm uh, Victor does everything he can possibly do to on the right side of all these good issues. And I hope he brings along a lot of his classmates. Yeah, no, I, I, I <laughs> no pressure. Well, thank you both Congresswoman Spear and uh, Mayor Rotering for coming on. This has been such, um, honestly, a depressing conversation, but I am also optimistic. And I think that with people like you, Ma Mayor Rotering, and people who are, you know, Democrats and responsible people in government, we can get things done. Um, and it's just another reminder in 2024, we have to elect better people in office who actually care about our lives. So thank you both for shedding light on this issue. And talking about this uniquely American problem. We are both so grateful. Thank you for having us. Great to see you, Jill. Mayor. Wonderful to meet you. Bye -bye. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Okay, so, well, I, I think there are so many different ways that we can talk about what just happened. I mean, Gun violence pervades every city, every every state in America. I don't know. What do you feel like is going to happen, Jill? I mean, are you optimistic about our nation's gun laws? I am because, like the former representative, I am a very much an optimist at heart. Yeah. And then I do believe that ultimately rational thought is going to prevail and people are going to see that um, – you can safely own a gun. You can own, you know, a hunting rifle. It's not the same as an automatic or semi-automatic weapon, which should not be used for hunting. Hunting is a sport um, or is for subsistence living. Uh, but very few people use it for subsistence uh, food intake. And I, I, yeah, I'm basically... I cannot give up hope and I will keep on fighting for um, gun safety laws. I loved that phraseology uh, of Representative Tchaikovsky. And um, I think that's a good way to start calling it. Right. And I'm also vehemently pro equal rights amendment and think it's more than symbolic. It is yeah. important. And so I hope everyone listening, if you have more questions, uh, send them to us. We'll we'll talk about this more, but we're really happy with it. Yeah. Um, but while we're talking about guns, I want to pivot a little bit to not just gun violence, but to the recent episodes of police violence. And, um, you know, this goes back in my lifetime 
um, police violence. Rodney King maybe was the yeah. first episode of that, which yeah. was before your um, <laughs> before your time. Before my time. But I know you're a history buff and everything that you know that Rodney King was pulled from his car and badly beaten by the L.A. Police Department. Um, and of course, we just had a recurrence of that uh, with Tyree Nichols, who I I, I love. Um, and Stephanie Rule played some of this. There are videos of him skateboarding. Yep. There are there are pictures of his photographs. He was a photography buff and took very lovely photographs. He seems to be a gentle, wonderful young man beaten to death yeah. by the police in horrendous violence, punching his face, kicking him when he was down, giving him 71 different commands in like 13 minutes. 13 minutes, yep, yep. And not giving him a chance. I mean, some of them were, he, they were holding his arms saying, show me your hands. And they were holding them down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And, you know, the discussion has been, what are the solutions to that? You know, is it more police training? And this was not racist. You know, I'm saying it's not racist because the police who have been charged with a murder are all black and he is black. There was one white police officer involved in the early stage before the actual beating. But when they first pulled him out of the car and were treating him very roughly and forcing him to the ground and people are now saying that that is racist, that he has not been charged or arrested. Um, and the fire department, which answered the uh, the emergency medical technicians, did not respond. They stood, or sort of stood there and didn't take care of him. Um, I don't know if that would have changed the outcome in terms of whether he died or not, but clearly they were not doing their job. What is your generation responding to this? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we, we think of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor because those are some more recent examples. But like you said, this has been going on since, you know, Rodney King, before Rodney King. So it's 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 a very systemic issue. And, and something that really um, I, I found really just I've learned a lot since that shooting. I talked to Brittany Packnick Cunningham on, on my show on Monday. Which shooting? Which shooting? Oh, sorry. Since um, since this beating of, of Tyree Nichols, and and one of the things that she said that really got me thinking. I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I mean, you know, we've invested millions, maybe billions of dollars into training. We we've hired more diverse people. We've done the things that people call for body camps, but nothing's getting better. And and police brutality and police violence are only getting worse. Last year, it was more than two thousand cases, and um, that's worse than 2021. That's worse than 2020. It's just getting worse. And so I don't know what the answer is. I know that there's the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, in the in Congress right now, which hasn't passed, and I don't know if it will get passed in this Republican-controlled House. But it's it it's like you know something has to be done, and um, it, it kind of goes back to our nation's gun violence. I mean, this is a uniquely American problem. You don't see police around the world, you know, beating people to death because of a tr supposed traffic uh, incident. And um, you know, one of the things that Brittany said, and, and I'm definitely not an expert on this, is you know when we talk about one of the things that, you know, we've been seeing since uh, Tyree Nichols is, you know, people are saying because the police officers weren't, um, you know, white, um, that it couldn't have been racist. But there's a lot of white supremacist work and um, anti-blackness work that shows that it doesn't take someone who is not, um, you know, 
black or some, someone who's not white for it to be um, a white supremacist or racist act. I mean, people can still perpetrate this against people of their own skin color. And so I think it's just this power dynamic that police officers have that I think contribute a lot to this. And so, you know, in terms of what my peers think, I think, you know, we're devastated. We are just crushed that this is another incident of police violence. And I think it's on Congress now and, you know, looking at our state and local elected officials about what can be done and, you know, why doesn't training work? Why don't body cameras work? It seems like nothing's getting better. And so, you know, we just look to elected officials and hope they have the courage to act and address these issues. Two things you said really piqued my interest. One is, the body cams, you have to think, how how could they have kicked and beaten him so brutally knowing they were wearing body cams? Right, and right. how could they have lied about the whole episode in their first reports knowing that there were body cams? Yeah, yeah. Um, but there are, uh, uh, the, the other issue is the police culture that would allow this kind of violence that they could have gotten so angry so quickly. Yeah. First of all, there's no evidence of his driving recklessly, which is what I am told is the original reason they stopped him. They were following him. Why is there no video of him weaving and bobbing or doing something dangerous? I haven't seen that. If there is something like that, maybe that would explain at least why they stopped him. It would never explain why they pulled him violently from the car and pushed him to the ground. And I mean, even if he had been in violation of some traffic law, things are supposed to be proportional police violence laws, the use of force laws of almost every police department require that it be proportional and you can never chase a traffic Mm -hmm. violation for, first of all, he left his car, you know who he is. You know where he's going. There, It's just inexplicable. And it's the same thing going back to the topic of our podcast is I don't understand why Republicans aren't in favor of limiting magazine size, limiting automatic weapons, at least those two. Yeah. Why they aren't putting money into enforcing red flag laws. And in the same thing here, I don't know what the answer is, that's for sure. And I've been listening carefully this week, but you're right. It seems to be a police culture issue. And I I mean, I grew up in an era when police were, you know, the friendly policeman who would protect you. And um, although I then as a, um, I guess when I was in at least, well, after 16, because I had a driver's license, there was a big scandal in Illinois, Chicago police would pull you over randomly and expect money to let you go. Um, Which was a very scary time because my father raised me to never have even considered that. And, um, you know, you'd get pulled over for not doing anything. And my father would never, I I, I mean, there was no way I could offer a bribe to a policeman. It just was not in my family culture. But that's sort of what was expected um, during that era. I think there's just this, you know, police officers think that they are somehow immune or somehow can evade accountability. But I'm comforted by the fact that the Memphis Police Department has taken such swift and immediate action. And hopefully this will send a message that, you know, if if you do this type of thing, there will be consequences. But, you know, I just am saddened that it takes another incident like this for our country to 
pay attention to this. And I hope that, you know, the George Floyd and police, you know, I, I, there's, um, I think it passed in the Senate, the George Floyd um, police adjusting act, but, you know, still in the House, will Republicans act? You know, I'm not sure. I, I, I do want to, before we end this segment, say this is not in any way a condemnation of all policemen. I would probably say most policemen are fine, upstanding citizens who would never allow this to happen. In Memphis, we saw five actively beating him. There were at least eight, and it was hard for me to see how many, but it looked like at least eight, which means three were standing there doing nothing, not intervening. And to me, that is not honoring your commitment to protect and defend, which is what police are supposed to do. So I, I hold them to some extent responsible, but I do wanna say, Thank you to most police officers who are the people I would think of to call if my home were invaded or I heard a strange noise. I'm going to call the police and I am not for defunding the police in any way, shape or form. And I don't think most people are. I think reforming the police is a different story. And that's up to the police department to work on. Um, When I headed uh, the office at the um, career and technical education for the Chicago public schools. We had a wonderful program with the police and fire departments. And I saw the wonderful training they do and the commitment they have to the public and admire them enormously. So please no one take this as a condemnation of anything other than the five out of control officers who beat to death a fine young man. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. I know we are running up uh, against the clock right now. So thank you for bearing with us. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode with Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, who represents Jill's district and isn't too far from my home district, um, Mayor Nancy Rotering, who isn't too far from my hometown, and also uh, representative, former Representative Jackie Spear, who has been such a fierce voice for women for so many different issues. So um, thank you all of our panelists for joining us. And thank you all for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We will be back next week with another episode. So be sure not to miss it. But in the meantime, you can find us on YouTube at youtube.com politicon. Be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss our live episodes every Tuesday. And if you listen to the podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you follow your podcasts. It helps a lot. So on behalf of Joel and me, thank you so much for tuning in.